All right. Okay. Welcome to the Thereafter Podcast, a place where we explore life on the other side of faith change. We're here to break down the binaries, deconstruct the dualities, and wander through what it looks like to live in the gray. In church, we were told that life after leaving would be a bitter wasteland of unfulfilling hedonism, but we've discovered quite the opposite. There's actually a vibrant community of people on the other side of faith who are finding and co-creating space for hope and healing. Come along as we explore the all too often uncharted expanse of evangelicalism, evolving faith, and the life thereafter. Thereafter podcast. Megan, how are you? Good. I'm great. It's Sunday afternoon. I just cleaned out my fridge. I tweeted out an Easter oh chocolate cross God. that I found while I was cleaning I love my fridge. cleaning out my fridge. That is no, like the like, most cathartic, wonderful feeling. I like had a rag and was like cleaning the shelves. I mean, it, I had not like done deep that. Cleaning. Yeah. And it, I just want to open it and look at the beautiful shelves right now because how they do you look feel? Nice. Does it feel great? It does. And there's no mold in my fridge anymore. So, yeah. That's, if I'm ever having a high anxiety um, moment, so like I have, this is like, um, probably more uh, conversation than we need to get into. But basically, I deal with a lot of anxiety and abandonment issues and fear of abandonment and whatever. And in in my uh, uh, polyamorous journey, part of that journey has been me like figuring out how to be alone, how to like deal if like crystals out and then I'm, you know, not a part of whatever's happening. And, and so oftentimes that's very triggering for me. And so like I, when I'm like deeply anxious or feeling uh, abandoned or possibly having panic or, or those sorts of things, I love to deep clean. And wow. so there's like this, like, yeah, there's this, this, this like kind of conflict probably for crystal between like, she hates putting me in that position where I'm feeling that way. But every time that I'm in that position, man, I deep clean. And so like the fridge is like one of those things. If I'm having like a high anxiety moment, deep cleaning my fridge is my, one of my go-to things. Yeah. I love it's, it is. It's I, so it is like a form of self care. Comforting. And yeah, I've I've gone through the pantry and our cabinets and our kitchen. I've kind of just. I think the pandemic, we've accrued a lot of clutter and apparently expired food. So. <laughs> I, oh yes. Yeah. Cleaning my fridge, cleaning my pantry, cleaning my closet. Sometimes I'll reorganize my closet. That's another deep clean thing. It's it's just like the experience of having something at the beginning of the project look like it does currently and you can kind of see behind me this room that's <laughs> like a giant fucking mess right now it's like at the beginning it's that and then once you do it in one sitting you can just feel very accomplished anyway i'm proud yeah. of you and excited for you thanks go megan well um should we get into twitbits let's do it i've been off grid and we were talking about this before we hit record um i've been just way off of twitter because we've been on family vacation the last week so i have not been following what's happening um well first i have a question for you though yeah do you play the wordle <laughs> dude i play the wordle i <laughs> i haven't this week because like I said, I have been, I have, I told Megan before we started, I have like 500 plus 
unread notifications on my phone currently. Um, well, several you're of those vacation. are like group messages, but yeah, so I didn't play the Wordle this week, but I love, I love the Wordle because it's so low commitment. It makes me feel a part of something everybody else is a part of. Um, it's actually pretty easy. So like, it's like, it's very rare that you don't get it. So you always feel accomplished, even if you get it in five, yeah. almost always you can get it. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of things about Wordle I love. It's so funny because I was terrified of it when I started seeing the tweets because I thought it was an ongoing word game and I was like, I will get addicted and I will never put my phone down. And then That's the somebody, beauty of it. It's yeah. just one and you're done. Well, somebody told me that and I was like, oh. And so then I did it. was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I like to do it in the morning like when I'm making my coffee. Like maybe sometimes even before I get out of bed, I'll like wake up and do the Wordle or like while I'm brewing my coffee, I'll do the Wordle. And then it's always before anybody else. So I always feel like I get a jump on anybody in my time zone, at least. Well, and last night I tweeted out that it was 1144 and I was about to go to sleep and I stayed up the extra 16 minutes so that I could, I could play Wordle right before I went to sleep because it was a Saturday night. I didn't have anything to get up for. So yes, yeah, I get mad because Josh for the wordle. Yeah, Josh Scott if if he was on our show earlier this season, but he's in Nashville and he always does it before he goes to sleep and so it's always like 10:30 p.m. and I'm like, "Damn it, I I'm going to bed. I have to I have to wait until tomorrow." Yeah, I like doing it in the morning. I'm 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 preferential to the morning wordle. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 into it. I do the wordle. Everybody has their own time, their own special time to have your quiet time in the Wordle, Cortland. So if yours is the morning, that's great. <laughs> my, my quiet time in the Wordle. <laughs> I got to spend some time in the Wordle before I'm ready to. <laughs> I, I did have a tweet I, this week. I think that I did say, like, I think God would be so proud of how many of us are spending our daily time in the Wordle. And it got a little <laughs> bit of traction. <laughs> it was a good, that's amazing. It's a good time. But I love, I love all the it. takes that I'm reading, and um, now people are um, making some funny emoji uh, renditions of of Wordle results. But um, yeah, all the some I think somebody said, you know, it's funny I don't play Wordle, and when I see those tweets, I just give them a like because that's great <laughs> that people are having a fun time, and I don't need to hate <laughs> on their fun. So <laughs> yeah, I my Wordle tweets always get a lot of likes. I'm always impressed. People people like the Wordle tweets. So what else is going on in in Twitter? Uh, this week since I've been, I'm, I've been out of it. Um, well, have you, have you seen what's going on with Spotify? A lot of people are tweeting about Spotify right now. I have not, uh, fill me in about what you, you told me a little bit, but fill me in about what's going on with Spotify. But I feel like this has been going on for a long time. It's surprising to me that this is, this is a current conversation. Cause I, I feel like we had this conversation about Spotify several months ago, like, as a as a as a society i'm not sure what what happened yeah i mean i think it's come to a head where people are just fed up with how much platform they're giving to joe rogan and and the guests that he's having on talking about covid and the misinformation and i think part of it is because they have the exclusive deal with joe rogan and so this week especially um artists and podcasters are starting to come forward and say hey we are going to leave this platform if Spotify continues to platform Joe Rogan. And so I think it started with Neil Young, um, the musician, Neil Young. Have you, you know, I, I can't believe that Neil Young is relevant. That's <laughs> so 
honestly kind of exciting to me because uh, I love Neil Young. Old man, take a look at my life. I'm a lot like you. Oh, Corlins, you need That's to come Neil to Young. our yeah. You need to come to our karaoke night. Can I do I, that Neil Young song? Um, <laughs> it's, you not, know, it's not a CCM probably. song. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So we'll don't let me forget to circle back to karaoke night. But um, yeah, Neil Young's got to be like a thousand years old. So he came out and he's leading the resistance against Spotify. Well, I think I think he was the first artist to really have the ultimatum and say either you drop Joe Rogan or I'm leaving. And Spotify did not drop Joe Rogan. And so he left. And now, you know, most recently I saw Brene Brown. She has an exclusive deal with Spotify. And she said, I will not be releasing podcasts until further notice. And she didn't say anything else about it. But um, I'm starting to see more and more people say these things. And more than one person has either tweeted or texted me to say, if Taylor Swift would just um, get on board with this, it would all be over because nobody's going to let Taylor Swift leave their platform. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but Taylor Swift wasn't on Spotify for a long time. She held out. She was one of the last, you know, big when she the Beatles weren't on streaming. And so when the Beatles went on streaming and then Taylor Swift also wasn't on streaming um, at all, Apple Music or Spotify. And then I think she made a deal with Apple Music and then finally came to Spotify. But like, I don't know. I, I I honestly don't know how I feel about the whole thing. I mean, I'm no Joe Rogan fanboy um, by any means, but also I don't know. Uh, I I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about it. Do you tell me how you feel about it, Megan? And then and then I might say how I feel. OK, well, I so a lot of people in my Twitter world are tweeting out, you know, I just dropped Spotify or I'm switching to Apple Music or that's it. I'm fed up. I and won't I've, do that. I hate Apple Music. I switched to Apple Music for a few months when I bought my Apple Watch and I hate it. It's the worst. So well, here's what I can't I won't be doing that. Here's what I can't give up about Spotify is I've got a lot of playlists. Like, do people not have playlists? Like I Last summer, I started a playlist with a friend where we would just drop songs pretty much every yeah. day, a song a day. And there's over 400 songs on that playlist. And I can't, I I mean, it would take hours for me to transfer that. And so I, but I've, I've been mulling over all of this because, you know, I, there, people talk about Amazon and, you know, no longer shopping at Amazon for, you know, and there's all different things where now you're seeing, um, that these, these musicians are kind of taking a stance and actually people are dropping their subscriptions and it's making an impact. And so it just kind of has made me wonder what is the right thing to do? What's the ethical thing to do in these kinds of situations, you know? Yeah. I mean, the ethical thing to do, it makes me think of, of the good place because the ethical thing to do is to not use the internet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like literally like every time you get on the internet, you're being unethical in some, in some way. Right. I mean, you, you can, you can complain about Amazon and say, I won't shop on Amazon. Do you stream on Netflix? Netflix hosts all of their media on AWS, Amazon web services. Right. So if you stream Netflix, you use Amazon. So Amazon doesn't make its money off of selling bullshit on two day prime. Right. They do make money that way, but like they make their money as a, as a computing company, right. They're, they're, uh, uh, 
computing, uh, their AWS, Amazon Web Services, is, I don't know for sure, but most likely a much larger moneymaker for them. Uh, their, their data aggregation, right? The amount of data that they are aggregating through all of these web services that they have. So like, yes, you could, you know, oh, I cancel my Prime membership, but they're connected to everything. I mean, you, you, it does remind me of The Good Place. Um, and if you haven't watched the show, uh, they talk about how like as society has progressed, it's impossible to do anything good uh, to get you into, yeah. the, into The Good Place, right? Because anything good you might do has 10 or 15 or 20 other byproducts, right? You buy flowers for somebody and it seems like, ooh, that's a good thing, but those flowers were actually grown unorganically and it harmed the soil and messed up the ecology and threw off some economy in some other part of the world. Um, so like your act of buying those flowers is actually causing all of this harm, even though you're doing a quote unquote good thing. And that's kind of how I feel about the internet, right? Like any, you know, anything you do on the internet is going to have a host of, of unethical implications because the internet is inherently built in capitalism, right? It's built right. in this like capitalistic framework that the use of it, it at all is contributing in some way to some type of um, oppression, right? And I'm, I'm not saying like throw up your hands and don't give a fuck about anything, but I also would challenge people to, to be cautious about how, you know, uh, uh, pure their interaction is um with something that's so big and complex yeah um, such yeah as, that makes such sense the internet and i mean like but, even thinking about amazon like i have friends that are self-published authors and amazon's the only place that can they you can get their books from and so there's i mean it is a much larger conversation than just cancel your service that's it you know and um, but there is something to be said about a collective group pulling together to make a stand on something and seeing that make change. And, you know, if you look at the Spotify, the numbers, um, I, I think that I saw something this week where their stock dropped a little bit. And I, I mean, I, so I just will be interested and curious to see what happens going forward if more people come, more of these artists come forward and say, I don't want my music streaming on Spotify. And if more and more subscribers drop, I'll just be curious to kind of see how this plays out. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think it's an interesting conversation. I watched on the airplane, um, out to LA this last week. I watched Ozzy's and Sari's new, very short special. Did you happen to catch that? On no, Netflix? I have not yet. You should give it a watch. Um, I've talked, I think, on the podcast before about Ozzy's last special, um, which I also very much loved. And I really appreciated his uh, perspective and just like, just like the way that he kind of brings up, because he talks about COVID and he talks about, you know, um, these things, he brought up Aaron Rodgers, you know, he's like, what do you guys mm. think about Aaron Rodgers? Right. And somebody in the audience is like, fuck him. And he's like, yeah, fuck him. You know, like he's like, but at the end of the day, like, are we really surprised? Like he's a football player. Like, aren't we kind of all like 
ganging up on the, the the dumb quarterback and be like, you failed the science test. Like, <laughs> like, are we really surprised that the football player came to the wrong conclusion about science? Like, uh, are, are, is there, is there a better way that we could have these conversations aside from creating this shame based, um, thing, you know, and he, and he brought up in that, uh, the, the ivermectin thing, right. Um, yeah. and, the, Oh, the horse medicine, the horse. Well, ivermectin is a medicine that's FDA approved for use in humans, right? It has been for, I believe decades, definitely years. Right. And so I get what people are saying when you go, oh, you're taking horse medicine, but, but, it's it's not horse. I mean, it is horse medicine. Like it is used in horses, but it's also used in people. It has been used in people as a deworming medication. Yes, it doesn't have any proven connected uh, results to preventing or treating COVID. But when we say something like "you're so stupid, you're taking horse pills, you dumbass," like the shame based, uh, you know, uh, approach, is it effective? And I right. don't think that it is. It's not, it's not, no one's going like, oh yeah, I'm going to change my mind because I was shamed uh, into thinking that I had been deceived. You know, if anything, it causes people to double down oftentimes in their beliefs and fail to have a widening perspective on things. Yeah. Um, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm, I'm guilty of, you know, being angry and saying, yeah, these unvaccinated people in the hospital should just fucking die. You know, like I've said cruel things like that because I'm angry. I'm right. angry that misinformation is causing people to die. I'm angry that misinformation is dividing families and keeping people from being together because somebody got in somebody's ear and convinced them that the vaccine was going to, you know, harm them in some way. Uh, but, but saying, I hope you die <laughs> is not going to convince anyone to come over to my side or take a longer look. So there's gotta be a better, there's gotta be a better way. And I don't, I don't know what it is, but I definitely feel like I've been guilty of, of oversimplifying the problem. Yeah. Because. I, oh, go for it. No, I just, it's just not a simple, it's just not a simple solution. It's not like enough people drop their Spotify. That's not going to make Joe Rogan go away. Well, and that's He'll what I was just going to say, because I think the way that people are approaching this is as if Spotify dropped Neil Young over Joe Rogan. And if you think about it, there was an ultimatum there, right? And so Neil Young put them in a corner and said, it's either Joe Rogan or me. And I mean, he... So at the end of the day, Neil Young chose to walk. He was not dropped by Spotify. He pulled his music from Spotify. And so more and more artists and podcasters are choosing to do that and subscribers are choosing to do that. But I think that that is an important distinction too because um, they're opening this platform. But on the flip side, I think it lends itself to a whole other conversation that we won't be having today about free speech and what that looks like and who platforms it and all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a there's a huge conversation there, but I feel like anytime these conversations come up, it it is so easy for us to get enraged 
and for us to oversimplify and for us to really, um, again, back to this Aziz and sorry, not to platform him. He has his own skeletons in his own closet. Um, and I, at this point, I'm refusing to put anyone on a pedestal because I, I feel like 99% of people are going to disappoint me anyway. Um, but Aziz talks about, he's been living in London with, I believe his, uh, partner. Um, and he's like, the last time I was in New York, it was like all the election stuff was going on and we were all so invigorated and we're going to, you know, we're going to stop Trump and we're going to, we're going to change the world and we have to rally together and we have to do this. And he's like, and then, and then you did it. And he's like, and I come back two years later and it's the same shitty place. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same shitty place it was two years ago. Where did all that energy go? Like we, we, we got all like, we got to end Trump. We got to stop Trump. We got to save democracy. And then as soon as Trump's out of the picture, what did we do? We went back to just scrolling on TikTok and ignoring the fact that there are homeless people everywhere. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is a great intro into our <laughs> into yeah. our episode today because it's like we have all of these problems that are right in our face all the time. And it's easy to get pissed about Spotify giving Joe Rogan a million dollars and ignore the homeless person sleeping outside of your front door. And not to like pit those two things against each other, but it is so much easier to tweet about how I'm not giving Spotify my $8 a month than it is to actually acknowledge the fact that I am a part of enabling a system that is systemically failing hundreds of thousands of people right around me. Right. Yeah. That I have that I have the ability to touch and change and, and impact in, in my world. Um, I don't know. That's, and that's I, th I think that is a great intro because we have Kevin Nye in the house uh, where you yes. have an interview to share with you um, that we actually, I said in the house, but we recorded it a few weeks ago. But yeah. um, that was such a great conversation. Um, I had fun hanging out with you both, but also he has such wisdom when it comes to homelessness and thoughts about how to proceed forward, thoughts about what to do, things, actions that people can take. And if you don't follow him on Twitter, he's often tweeting out such wisdom. And so I, it's a great interview. And I, I really hope that our listeners take a lot away from it because I think th there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely enjoy this interview. I had several people message me and say that they enjoyed hearing from Kevin on the TwitBits segment that he was featured on and we're looking forward to this interview. So um, I'm hoping some of those people who found out about him through that will will enjoy this this conversation. Yeah, let's roll. All right, Kevin, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to I feel be like it's back. been forever. I know. I really, you know, I've changed a lot as a person since the last yeah. time we talked. So I hope that uh, that's not too much of a shock to you all. We should <laughs> probably just re rehash the the what we discussed before and see how your answers have shifted yeah, totally uh, in this yeah. period of time. No, now I'm I'm super pro Ramsey. I'm. Uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, you got that new Ramsey gig, right? Yeah, I'm a, yeah. He actually, you know, he said, you know, if you can't beat him, join him, and he offered me a job, and yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, we're getting into it. We're gonna get into it. Let's um, 
We wanted to bring you on, Kevin, because um, we love seeing your work. But I want I want to get into conversations about your work. But I also uh, I think a lot of our listeners don't that that might follow you on Twitter don't know a lot about your history and your background. And um, I know you've had you had your own story of deconstruction, and it but yeah. it was a while ago. And so I and I don't for- either, honestly. Oh, I yeah. don't know that story. Yeah. Either we've hung out in clubhouse rooms and then I've followed you on Twitter. But other than that, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear what your, you know, what your entry experience into faith and what that, you know, experiences look like for you. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's funny because, you know, when I joined Twitter and Facebook and clubhouse to kind of have these conversations, I really gravitated toward deconstruction communities, even though, my deconstruction happened a while ago, or at least began <laughs> a while ago, kind of earlier than a lot of the people who are kind of in that community right now. Uh, but it's just a space that I'm drawn to because I went through it. I still go through it. And uh, that community didn't exist quite the same when I did. Um, yeah. So yeah, just uh, background is um, I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, uh, which is an evangelical uh, denomination that's kind of an offshoot of Methodist, um, started in the early 20th century, uh, really kind of defined by their approach to holiness, uh, but very distinct from the kind of Pentecostal holiness tradition. Um, they kind of, they both started in the same place, but Pentecostals kind of went into their own more kind of experiential category. Um, so I grew up in that and around middle school perceived what I interpreted at the time as a call to ministry. Um, and so for kind of my entire high school identity was that I was sort of a youth pastor in the making. Um, and I went to, I went to college at a Nazarene university in Oklahoma uh, to pursue that. And I began the ordination process in my denomination around that same time. Uh, but once I got to um, once I got to college, I was sort of encouraged to start, you know, reading <laughs> interesting theology. And in college, they were telling you you should read. Yeah, this weird, right? Um, okay, wait. But before we get to the college, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just need to ask you a question. When you were in high school and you had this call, were you trying to like? win all the unsaved lives of your high school peers to Christ? You an evangelist? <sighs> you know, I, so I knew at some point I was going to end up saying this, but I'm an Enneagram five. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not a person that's like going to initiate <laughs> a lot of uncomfortable conversations, right? Like I'll get into them, especially with like close friends or people I trust, but I'm not leading <laughs> with that. So I may have thought in my head, that's what I should be doing, but I definitely wasn't. What I was more often doing was, uh, and this is part of where I first started to deconstruct was I very much had synthesized, you know, uh, Republican politics with faith. And so I was more likely to be the guy, you know, taking a particular political posture because of my faith in like an antagonistic way than I was mm. trying to convert someone to Christianity. Mm. Uh, I've okay. never, I've never told this story in such a public setting, but I'm going to do it just for you guys. Yes. Uh, just don't put Exclusive. this in your, 
don't put this in your episode title, but you can leave it in. Uh, the senior year, me and my conservative friend had shirts made that said, it's a child, not a choice. Wow. And, we wore, and we wore those to school. Oh, man. Um, wow. Yeah. And we tried to wear them for senior class picture day. And we got told that we weren't allowed to, which, you know, at the time I just assumed was persecution persecution yeah yeah oh. where um, did, and where did you grow up was it in the midwest you said you went no, to college in uh, that, that was in arizona um, okay yeah college was in oklahoma but growing up in uh, tempe arizona okay okay i'm i'm familiar a little bit with the nazarene denomination because mid-america nazarene university mm-hmm. was in olathe which is where i grew up Right. Um, and I dated a girl for like three weeks who, who went to that church. All of Cortland's entry so. stories into different parts <laughs> of churches have to do with who who you dated. That was- <laughs> who, who I was trying to date or yeah. who I was dating. Yeah. No, that, that checks was, out. Yeah, that but, was definitely how I was brought into the kingdom. <laughs> but back to back to college, Kevin, you started to tell us a little bit about did you said you went to Bible college? Yeah, I mean it was a it was a university, so it wasn't just specifically for people, you know, studying to be ministers. Um, but I was, and freshman year, uh, it's it's so crazy to to say this because the Nazarene is a pretty conservative denomination, and I was going to school in Oklahoma. But really, my professors there really started radicalizing me. <laughs> um, my yeah. my first my intro uh, intro to Biblet class was starting to like really deconstruct how I read the Bible. Like I very much remember in that class, my mind being blown when my professor was reading the passages in Isaiah that we often say are like predictive of Christ and showing that those actually had historical context in that moment and aren't necessarily predicting Christ. Um, So that was blowing my mind in a different class. There was a big book list that we could pick a couple books to read from and I chose Velvet Elvis by Rob Bell. And it was on the list. It was wow. on the list. Yeah. I mean, Velvet Elvis is pretty tame for, you know, what he would go on to Love say Wins, in later right? books. Oh, yeah. Way before Love Wins. Yeah. Um, and I read, I read Velvet Elvis and uh, that one just really blew my mind. And that's where... That's back when Rob Bell was still citing his sources. And so he would, <laughs> he would put like footnotes of a lot of other books to read and uh i told megan i was listening to the josh scott episode earlier and there's a lot of crossover there uh with how we mm. first started like rob you know mentioned brian mclaren so i was like let me get some brian mclaren books i heard about shane claiborne i was like let me get some shane claiborne let me get some donald miller and then in i think it's in jesus for president he cites a ton of sources in that and i was just like filling up my Amazon wish list with every book that they were all mentioning. Uh, and then at the time Rob was still at his church in Grand Rapids. He had sermon series that you could purchase on the website. You could also subscribe and get the new one every week. And my summer job after freshman year, I was a mail filer. And so I could listen. That was completely brainless activity. So I'd be listening to these sermons just all day by Rob Bell and uh, and other folks who, you know, were doing kind of the similar, uh, at the time was called like the emergent church movement. 
Um, yeah, yeah. Before that thing came crashing down. Um, yeah, I but, remember the emerging church. Yeah, and so I was I was really deep into that, and um, I really became or wanted to become, you know, like like those guys. And uh, I had the realization while I was listening to Josh talk that basically like Josh's trajectory is what I wanted for myself. But at 19, nobody was going like, uh, <laughs> like in Hamilton where they're like, let's, let's get this guy in front of a crowd. No one was doing <laughs> that for me. Cause I, I, I don't have like a natural public speaking charisma about me. Uh, I'm much more of a writer, which is why I love, I love Twitter and I love like writing books because I can get my ideas across in really good ways, but like put me in front of a crowd. I'm much more likely to read from a script that I wrote than just start talking. Right. Um, so I wanted to be Josh Scott, but that wasn't happening organically. Um, yeah. Well, I just find that interesting that the people I've, I felt like there was a lot of people possibly in my spheres who were like you, who were maybe more well-read or more broadened in ideas, but because you weren't maybe the personality to speak, I was less exposed to those ideas. Whereas mm -hmm. like the guy who like listened to some Mark Driscoll and read Confessions of the Reformation Rev, who like, you know, was boisterous and had you know, the tap out t-shirt was who I was hearing a lot of, you know, ideas from. And I think it's interesting because I think there was probably people like you in my circles earlier on that I wasn't hearing from or being exposed to because of that dynamic. Mm -hmm. I just found that interesting. Well, I think something too, that's very unique about my experience is, you know, I said the Nazarenes come from a Methodist background, kind of Wesleyan trajectory, which meant that I was never really exposed to the new wave of Calvinism. So, you know, the Mark Driscoll, the John Piper, like Andy Crouch, all those guys who were kind of part of why the emergent church thing toppled is because they were also doing the new Calvinism at the time. And those things were seen synonymously. Um, I always had a suspicion of them because <laughs> I was Wesleyan, you know? And so I, and I, thank God that my, you know, natural inclination to wanting, uh, you know, power and control didn't merge with Calvinism at any point in my life. I yeah. wonder, I, I, I don't know how much in the trenches we want to get into this, but can you give a brief overview of the difference just for our listeners that might not know what that means when you say this was them and this was me? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the most fundamental, difference between Calvinists and Wesleyans is um, the idea of a free will. You know, Wesleyans are, believe that, you know, you have free will in choosing God and Calvinists would say that God foreordains and chooses you. And there's a lot of gray area in between, you know, there's, there's Calvinists that hold some of that loosely and there's Wesleyans that don't realize how Calvinist <laughs> they are in their thinking. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of the broadest definition. And I yeah. think that the sort of new wave of Calvinism really lends itself to the ideas of, you know, God preordaining everything, which kind of gives them a sense of like universal rightness and whatever they say, and sort of can be a breeding ground for authoritarianism and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really interesting. You point out that there was this like kind of hole that got filled, like, 
in the middle of the emerging church movement of like a lot of these people who were uh, just kind of like kicking around these ideas and talking about um, a lot of the theology and philosophy. And then you kind of had these people who stepped in that were like, no, we're God ordained and we have the answers. And for some reason, a lot of people were drawn to that. Um, yeah. Cause I think well, that I very easily was pulled into that for sure myself. Yeah. I mean, I think so many of us were drawn to the emergent movement for a sense of like, we are doing a different faith than our parents. Right. And that's what opened me up to deconstruction in the first place is, uh, you know, the church of the Nazarene is pretty young and we've seen generationally things change where like my grandparents were not allowed to go to movie theaters and we're not allowed to go to public pools for the sense of holiness. And my parents' generation was like, that's dumb. We're going to stop doing that. Like, that's not what holiness is. But they still had rules like, okay, but you, you don't dance. You don't go to dances. And then my generation was kind of like, that's dumb. We're going to go to dances. And like, we were all sort of kind of like, rejecting a little bit and so when i Pushing first started reading yeah so when i started reading rob bell and and brian mclaren especially their early stuff i was like oh this is my generation's like pushback on the previous generation and so i'm gonna latch onto it but then that just kind of kept careening <laughs> forward a little bit but i think the the new wave of, of calvinism was very much that at first it was like you know uh you know your calvinist pastor but in skinny jeans you know it was a little more uh, yeah. a little more hip swear. Yes, you drink exactly. Micro-brews. Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> Mark Driscoll is like drink beer and I'll, and I'll drop an F bomb on stage. And then I'll be like, are you more upset that I said the F word or what this story was about? Like that whole thing. It was like very, yeah. like I was very susceptible to that. Just, I got lucky that I wasn't susceptible to it from, <laughs> from Calvinists. But, and meanwhile, uh, Rob Bell yeah. is making the NUMA videos and blowing up piles of yeah. wood in the in the woods and and totally. wowing us all <laughs> absolutely so so how did it then transition from you you're on this track to like become a pastor or do some form of ministry and you know where were you thinking you were gonna go did you end up there like you said you you kind of envisioned yourself maybe with you know the similar plot to what Josh Scott said is maybe getting a church or pastoring or youth pastoring. I, I don't know exactly what you were thinking, but, mm-hmm. uh, how did it, how did it transition for you? Yeah. So when I graduated as a senior, I think sometime during my senior year, I realized that I really didn't want to be a youth pastor. <laughs> and so what that did for me was I said, okay, like I'm 22 years old no one's going to hire me as anything but a youth pastor. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that thing that most people do in our denomination, which is you be a youth pastor for 10 years and then you become a senior pastor. Uh, and, and at the same time I was having so much fun learning and reading and like the academic side was so fascinating to me that I said, I guess I need to go to seminary. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, I went to Fuller seminary here in LA. That's what brought me out here. And did uh, what should have been a three-year MDiv. I did a little slower and did it in four. Um, and kind of throughout that journey, and, and Fuller's considered, I mean, if you're super conservative, they think it's liberal. And if you're pretty progressive, they think it's too conservative. I'm on that side now. Um, but it's a pretty middle of the road. Uh, but it exposed me to some more stuff, to some more people, a new community. And I ended up, 
finishing seminary uh, affirming <laughs> and much more interested in like anti-racism and uh, you know James Cone and you know all these more like radical liberation traditions and uh, it's I kind of got to the point where I realized like I don't think that there there's not an obvious job out there for me in pastoral ministry. Um, so what am I going to do with myself? And at the time I was working in coffee shops primarily, and I really enjoyed that for a long time until I didn't. Uh, and at that point I was kind of in the middle of weird dynamics with my denomination where they were, cause you also have to understand this was around 2015, 2016. And so mm. the country was changing <laughs> And it, really 2015 did. is, are you talking about when 2015, when gay marriage became legal? So there's that. And then there's, and then there's, Trump. you know, then there's Trump elected in 2016. Right. And this is all around the time where I had finished my course of study and I'd really gotten pretty much all of my hours that I would need to get ordained. So now the serious conversations start at the denomination level in this pot where, Trump exists and gay marriage is legalized. So that's, you know, everyone wants to talk about it. And so those conversations started coming up in my meetings with the denomination and they weren't going well. <laughs> um, mm. Whereas in my denomination, I know a ton of pastors who are fully ordained, who are also totally affirming, but they, they either came to it later or they got through the process and weren't asked because it wasn't kind of in the zeitgeist. But it was just kind of all happening at the wrong time for, for me. And I say that tongue in cheek a little bit. Cause like, I'm very glad gay marriage was legalized in 2015, but it didn't yeah. help my ordination. Um, and yeah, it, it came to a head in, in 2016. Um, they called me in for just my district um, recertification every year. And they asked me a question uh, around gay marriage. And I, I wish I could say I was completely honest with them, but I wasn't, I, I really did that dance where I was going to say enough that they could have doubt, but that I wouldn't feel like completely ashamed <laughs> leaving the conversation, but, but it still, it flagged something in them because I didn't say exactly what they wanted to hear clearly. Uh, and that led to a conversation with the district superintendent one-on-one -on -one, where I was a little bit more honest, but still not fully honest. Um, and he was very clear with me that um, if I wasn't able to clearly articulate the denomination stance on that matter as my own, that I was not going to be able to be ordained. Um, and so and the denomination about, at the time believed that if what you had to be celibate for life, if, you were going to be part of a church if you were going to be part of the LGBTQ community and involved in church, or is that what their stance was? Pretty much, yeah. The actually that same year they had kind of cleaned up their language a bit in a in a positive way. Like before, it was really judgy, and it was the only it was the only thing in our entire manual that used really harsh language around like judgment and hellfire or something. And they cleaned it up to say, you know it is a sin or, you know, acting on it is a sin like any other sin. And, you know, trying to be like the nicest way that you can still not 
DM for me. softer hate. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, and this might be jumping ahead because I know that you're you're probably going to get to this aspect for your story, but I you you talk about these kind of theological uh, differences that you're having with you know your denomination and kind of with your pursuit of getting ordained. Was there a uh, and now I guess you know for folks who who know your work, you're working you know in the homeless population, you're working with uh uh people in poverty you know like was there was there a an aspect of conflict for you too with looking around and seeing the i guess the churches i remember for me there was like a huge moment in like 2004 2005 when the irresistible revolution came out where i was like the church doesn't give a shit about people (laughs) you know (laughs) was that like just in terms of actually caring about people, was that an aspect of, of conflict for you or was it more the theological intellectual study at this point? It was a little nuanced. Um, so yeah, at the time that this was all happening, 2016, I had just started working in homeless services for the first time. Um, but I was very early on realizing like, Oh, this is, this is great. And I, I think I can do this for a really long time. Um, the denomination was really supportive of that. And, you know, just like anyone I talked to about it, they're like, Oh, that's great. I'm so glad that you're, you're doing that. And, um, but they were always very clear that it wasn't counting toward my hours and also very clear that it wasn't pastoral ministry. And that, that bothered wow. me, but it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a breaking point for me because I kind of expected that. Um, but it, yeah, it really did bother me. Um, hmm. That's interesting. So the work that you were doing because it wasn't ministry wasn't counted as ministry hours, even though yeah. you were like working to care for people. Yeah. I mean, they would probably just base it on a technicality and say like, you didn't have a pastor as a supervisor and, you know, little things like that. But really what it came down to was like, I'm not doing the work th- with or through the context of a church and they would prefer that I was. So, yeah. So you came to this point where you were, um, trying to figure out like, okay, how honest am I going to be with the denomination? And then what you, um, did you just kind of break away? Did you lead them on for a little bit? What, how did it kind of, what happened? Yeah. It feels hard. Like it feels (laughs) like that would be a really tough spot. Yeah. So basically that one-on-one conversation I had where he told me, you're not going to get ordained unless you're able to say this. They did approve my, the renewal of my license. Um, so I didn't have to make a decision. Um, but at the time I was in therapy, uh, and I decided, okay, I'm going to figure out what I want to do. And this is going to be the focus of therapy for a little while. And it was for probably, three or four months is I was going to make the decision whether I was going to leave, whether I was going to try to force their hand to kick me out (laughs) or whether I was just going to like kind of play the odds and pursue it and see what happened. Um, And ultimately I did decide to just leave on my own. Um, And I, I mean, I can get into that to whatever extent interests you all, but Basically, what happened was I wrote 
Uh, I wrote a lengthy email to the district superintendent. Uh, I wrote another one to my blog, to all the people that, you know, have followed me and my career to that point, just kind of explaining what happened. Um, and that was it. Yeah. And I'm, I guess I'm curious, like looking now and I, I want to make sure that we have time to talk about the work that you're doing now. Cause, um, I, I love your perspective, but looking now at what pastors are going through now as after the election and with COVID and, and seeing them kind of try to walk the line and figure out how to handle politics and knowing that there's so many that are privately deconstructing that rely on income and can't really be vocal about how they truly feel. Do you see that? And you're just kind of like, wow, like I missed, um, or I, I guess I got like, I don't know, lucky or I missed this. Um, or, or like, what are your, what's your perspective when you see that now? Yeah. I mean, I was so fortunate to already be in a, a good enough paying job at that point that had nothing to do with the church that leaving was uh, a lot easier. And I should say, I I left the ordination process. I did not leave my church. Um, and the church I still attend today is in that denomination. We are sort of the, the, the like progressive <laughs> one in the denomination, kind of the mm-hmm. like, kind of the black sheep church, the one that they're like, they're proud of because we're getting like, we have people under 40 that love coming and we're, <laughs> uh, imagine that. Um, so yeah. they love, they love that about us, but they like, eh, we're not going to talk about theology when you're around though. <laughs> um, they just kind of turn a blind eye to the congregation as a whole in that way. Um, and like, that's where, that's where I attend and I'm still part of the denomination. I still try to attend denominational stuff when I can. And that was part of my, my decision to step away from the process um, was really that I I still want to be a part of the community. I, I These are my people in a lot of ways, even if I'm trying to like kind of push them along on certain issues. Um, so yeah, I wanted to clarify that, that I left, I left that tract, but I didn't leave the church. Um, but to answer your question, yeah, I was so fortunate that it might, it didn't cost me anything in terms of my financial stability. It cost me a lot in relationships. It cost me a lot in mental health and and grief and all of that. Um, but yeah, I was very fortunate in that way. And I I truly do not envy (laughs) all of the pastors that are dealing with that, um, who either have been, uh, more progressive for a long time and have kept it under wraps kind of the way Josh talked about in his interview, like mm-hmm. just put enough in there that the progressive listeners can be mm-hmm. like, ah, I caught that. But the conservatives are like, Ooh, I, I can't nail him down on that. But I kind of, that was a little iffy what he said, um, who now, because everything is so polarized and there's so much of like an insistence on like, tell me where you stand that, yeah, I, those pastors are are in a rough spot. I, I do not envy them. Yeah, yeah. So, how did your 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 priorities shift then? You're working in services for for people, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's what you're doing as a career that's not affiliated with the church. Um, you still bring a lot of your spiritual, religious, theological perspective to that work. Um, I'm curious as somebody who 
both is not affiliated at all with Christianity and also not doing anything in that space, which I feel to some extent kind of, kind of guilty about. There is an aspect of the fact that like, I don't necessarily do or, or delve into the type of, of touching and reaching and actually caring for the poor that I think that maybe I did while I was in Christianity. Mm. Um, and so I'm curious of like what, how your perspective shifts and how your priorities have changed and, and getting into the work that you're doing now and the book that you're working on and all of that. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, when I was going through all this with the denomination and things were just kind of stagnant, um, I stopped working in coffee shops and just, and I was kind of realizing, okay, I'm not going to get a job as a pastor (laughs) anytime soon. So what, what can I do with my career, my life that, you know, kind of scratches that, that itch that fills the, you know, my, my desire to, you know, be of service to people to, uh, to ultimately make the city where I am a better place for everyone. And, you can't spend much time in LA without recognizing that homelessness is our, our big crisis. Uh, and so I started sending out job applications and a friend of mine was working at uh, the place where I work now, the center and told me of an opening and, and that was it. I, I jumped in uh, some, some for the wrong reasons, some with kind of a little bit of a savior complex and, um, but kind of over time I've, it's been humbled a bit. Uh, and you know, I, the, the theological education, the ministry piece is, it's still a part of me, right? I didn't just, it didn't just go away. You know, that's what I spent because I, I felt this call in middle school, you know, so it, for more than a decade of my life, I believed that this was who I was becoming, who I was supposed to be. Um, and so in my work, I just kept seeing, you know, resonances of um, how I believed my faith called me to, what what Jesus was like. And as I was learning best practices for homelessness, I just kept seeing, oh, this really resonates with a more progressive lens on on Jesus, on scripture, on theology. And just making those connections uh, just really made me think that I wanted to to write a book on it. Um, and really what I, I learned over time in doing that work was that our big hang up in, in homelessness is not that we don't have the resources and it's not even that we don't know how to end it. Um, cause we actually do have evidence-based solutions for homelessness. It truly is an ideological, ideological issue that we, you know, as Americans, as capitalists and as Christians who really conflate all of those things as part of their Christianity have major ideological issues about poverty that prevent us from using the resources and the solutions that we know works. Um, And so I really wanted to write a book actually for Christians to synthesize what, what is, you know, a read on Jesus a read on scripture a read on theology with uh, with best practices in homeless services, uh, with the call being to be part of ending it. Because like you said, Corlin, Christians are really involved in these efforts and not not always in ways that are helpful, 
and a lot of a lot of them are negative. However, uh, you can get a lot of exposure and a lot of time spent with poor people through church ministries um, in a way that I think is 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 good in part because I, I think that any time spent conversation had with an unhoused person with a poor person uh, is is a meeting with God <laughs> in a way and you're going to be transformed by that experience. You can also do a lot of harm <laughs> in that situation mm-hmm. and in a lot of these ministry contexts. Uh, but there is at least a an amount of good that is happening just in that, you know, exposure. And I th- I do think that um the majority of Christians, whether they are conservative or progressive or something in between, genuinely do want to help people and their ideology, their theology may get in the way. It may decide that helping them means, you know, proselytizing or converting them um, rather than giving them housing. But, but the desire is there. And so the hope with my book is to try to kindle that desire to give the benefit of the doubt that I do think you want to do something about this. And I do think a lot of us, whether we're religious or not, are very confused about what to do with homelessness because it's such a complex problem that I want to, uh, I want to help give you that and give it to you theologically in a way that you can sort of synthesize your faith with your practice. When you talk about that ideological conflict, what what are some of those things that you feel do get in the way or are things that maybe are unconscious or subconscious things that need to be unlearned in order to engage with this help and, and with this work in a way that's more effective? Um, can you highlight maybe some of those things? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've kind of boiled it down to one (laughs) and yeah, go for it. And it, and it becomes a billion others, but it really kind of all starts from this premise. And it's exactly what we talked about in the episode, um, where I was part of, uh, Twitbits, uh, with the Dave Ramsey stuff, which is that it's fundamentally this belief that we have, whether we realize it or admit it or not, um, there's an American, capitalist and Christian belief that people who are poor deserve to be poor. Um, and again, we're not all out there saying that we're not putting that as our, our Twitter bios or anything, but in some way that, that central myth is infectious and it's in, it's in all of us because of the way that we've, we've been trained to see poverty and people like Dave Ramsey will exploit that to try to, you know, make some money off of, telling people how not to be poor. Um, and there's there's all different ways that that gets exploited. But really, at, at the end of the day, it means that when we look and we see the person on the street corner, we're immediately suspicious about helping them. We immediately start to wonder, are they faking it? Oh, those shoes look really nice. Uh, you know, like all of these <laughs> unconscious things start to happen. Um, or we say, or they're just going to use this money on drugs. Like we do all of this, (laughs) this work to sort of convince ourselves why, why they deserve it, which is a really easy and nice tidy way of not feeling a sense of responsibility, (laughs) uh, toward doing anything about it. Um, and so that one ideology, uh, is what I'm kind of trying to tackle with my central premise of the book, which is that if, 
is that this theological concept of grace means if you believe in grace, that means that the question of what people deserve does not matter. Like the idea Mm -hmm. of dessert is out the window that, you know, we, you know, God, yeah, if, sorry, stumbling a little bit. Um, if you believe in grace, if you believe, you know, the, the biblical understanding that, you know, God gives good things or life or salvation or whatever, not because we deserve it, but just because of who God is and asks us to do the same, then all these conversations we have about whether or not poor people deserve housing, whether they deserve a subsidy, whether they deserve our money or a meal, it's just not part of the conversation. It can't be theologically. Um, so then throughout the book, I'm applying that to different aspects of like, okay, what would that mean if we were to talk about it in terms of the housing market? What would that mean if we were to talk about it in terms of mental illness or substance use? Um, and so that's that's sort of the trajectory of the book is that macrocosm, and then we're going to apply it to all of the different intersections of homelessness. And yeah, and one of the things that you've talked about, I know we've had clubhouse rooms where we've talked a little bit about this, but one of the things that you've helped me see um, is your, the whole housing first. And, and I think mm-hmm. you've helped me kind of realize, because um, you mentioned a little bit earlier how some ways that Christians try to help are actually causing harm. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about the ways that the help is actually tied to um, the, the evangelism or how, you know, how that's all kind of linked in and kind of your approach when it comes to, um, homeless services. Sure. Yeah. So the sort of historic model for homeless services is based on the rescue mission model, uh, which every, you know, every major city has a rescue mission. And the essential idea is you can come in for shelter and a meal Used to be you had to listen to a sermon first. A lot of a lot of them have stopped doing that because of pushback and pressure. Um, but you come in for shelter or your meal, and that's it. But as the programs progress, right? So a lot of these rescue missions will have, hey, do you want to join our housing program? Do you want to join our this program where we give you more help? The more you opt into those, the more religious the programming becomes. So. Um, you may say, yeah, I do want to sign up for your housing program. They'll say, okay, well, one of the requirements is you have to come to this many groups per week. And those groups are largely Bible studies or they're extremely faith-based recovery programs. Um, And that model has sort of been adopted for a long time by non-religious nonprofits too, where basically it's not evangelistic, but you sort of have to earn your way up each step of the continuum. So you might, uh, you have to earn your way into the shelter by being sober for a certain period of time. Once you're sober enough, you can go to shelter. Uh, Once you do enough in the shelter program, you can graduate to interim housing where you might have a roommate or two. And then if you continue with their regiment, then you can get your own apartment and then you graduate, right? And it's whether it's religious or not, it's always merit-based. You have to prove that you deserve to get to the next step. And if you don't and you fail out, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's the Dave Ramsey thing. You're not successful because you didn't try hard enough, not because the program 
was bad or wasn't actually tailored to meet your needs, you failed the program. The program didn't fail you. Um, so a, a couple decades ago, about 20 years ago, uh, a, a guy pioneered this, uh, this new way of doing it called housing first, where, um, they did it a number of different ways, but kind of the most famous study was they, they took a random group of unhoused people in New York city and they walked up to them with an apartment key and said, do you want to move in today? And pretty much everyone said yes. And they moved into an apartment that day, you know, furnished everything they need was in the apartment and it was theirs. And then they provided wraparound services to them at the apartment. So whether they needed mental health services, substance use, uh, you know, physical health, whatever it was, they brought it to them. They provided it to them for a year. And then after a year, they completely pulled all the services away. And then they studied what the retention was like. And it was over 90% kept their housing after five years. Uh, And so, so after, so all of these studies have sort of just demonstrated that the real model is to actually just give people their basic needs immediately without strings attached to offer voluntary services and to allow people to become the drivers of, of their care give them what they articulate that they need and don't force anything else on them. And people will flourish. People will, uh, you know, come alive before your very eyes and, and take control of their situation. Um, and so, yeah, that's the approach that I argue for in my book that much smarter people than me have been arguing for, for a long time. But again, it's that hang up that the reason we won't do that, even though we have the method and we have the money to do it, is we're just so convinced that people don't deserve it. Mm. It's it's so fascinating to me that uh, that feels like a a, a very um, raw basic reading of the gospel is exactly what you just said, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. like give you what you need, regardless of your whether we think you deserve it or not. And when you are met with that level of providedness for people respond, you know, people is, I was always told like, oh, if you, if you receive God's love fully, then you're going to respond with, you know, righteousness or whatever. Right. Like, and we, and we can kind of say that in a theological way, but then in a practical way, I was always told that's not how the world works. Right. Yeah. The world works based on, meritocracy based on what you can earn based on what you deserve um, and how hard you're willing to work for it. Why is it so, why is there such a separation between those two things? Um, (laughs) I mean, that's what I'm trying to diagnose. Um, I suspect it comes down to money. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, do you feel like yeah. there's an identity that is rooted first in that type of philosophy that people to some extent inherit or or develop at a base level before really buying into the the that other theological view, right? Like like we're raised in this capitalist culture 
and we learn that first and then we accept Christ or whatever we become Christian. Um, and that transition doesn't work backwards. It's like, we've already developed, like, this is the idea of the way the world works. Yeah. I, that makes sense. Um, I mean, and, and so often the, the Christ that we accept is steeped in it already. So it's not like, uh, you know, certainly my experience in church was, it's not like I received capitalism and then received Christ and was like, well, I think I'm going to choose capitalism. No, like the, the version of Christ I received was very, like very friendly to the meritocracy and the capitalism or, or it was all spiritualized. And that's what a lot of, you know, liberation theologists, um, theologians and, and, decolonizing theologians will will highlight is the way that when it comes to concepts that are really subversive we will just default to talking about them in spiritual terms um, rather Mm -hmm. than talking about them as as practical realities like christ wants to set you free uh except when you preach that to the slaves you actually have to mean well what you're spiritually (laughs) free from from the inclination to sin and you're free from the devil, (laughs) you're not free, free, you know? And so, yeah, I think, I think that's often what happens in these contexts is the stuff that would otherwise be subversive or, you know, go up against a a capitalist agenda is, oh, that's, that's spiritual (laughs) talk. That's not the practical wisdom. Well, and I think this leads because I wanted you to talk about this also, um, and I'm not quite sure how to word this question, but I'll just say, um, you you mentioned a little bit that you kind of went into working with people that are experiencing homelessness with a little bit of a savior complex, and then you mm-hmm. kind of evolved from that. And I know I, you and I have had conversations where I've reached out and said, you know, I'm reading this book about somebody that works in homeless services. And I get this vibe that they're like having this savior complex. And, and, but when I read your writing and you know, you wrote an article about something that had happened, um, at, I think echo, is it echo Lake park? Is that how it's echo? Echo park and Lake. It, yeah. Echo park Lake. Yeah. And I, it was a lot different. And, and so you had a perspective that you and I talked about that I would love for you to share just about how you approach your work and how you approach writing about this topic. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's really hard um, because you can grow up with the, the conservative version, which is these quote unquote homeless people need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Um, But then you can swing completely in the other direction, which I see a lot of, you know, liberals and progressives do this, which is, Oh, these, these poor helpless babies need me to help them. And, but I'm going to get mad if they don't take the help exactly how I'm offering it. And they don't realize that I'm clearly the expert on how, (laughs) on how they should help themselves. Um, Whereas the truth and, and this is what you were talking about Cortland earlier is if, if you actually give people the thing that they're asking for and the basic thing that they need, unhoused people are some of the most resilient people in the entire world. I mean, how do, how do you spend years on the streets with no income and stay alive. You do it through ingenuity, through, you know, learning adaptive modes of survival. Like these are not people that 
cannot fend for themselves. Right. So, uh, it was, it was a big learning curve and it's something I still have to sort of like in many ways lay down every day and sort of read back my writing to myself through this lens of, of making sure, because I, I just slip into it so easily. Um, that, that, yeah, ultimately the experts on homelessness are the people who experience it and me writing a book about it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm gonna be given opportunities to speak for them. And, um, as often as I can, I want to make sure that I'm not speaking over them and that what I'm reflecting is something that they would agree with, that they would say themselves or have said themselves to me. Um, and yeah, what happened at Echo Park Lake was just the perfect example of a really thriving and beautiful community of unhoused people telling people in power exactly what they needed and instead getting a SWAT team and getting driven out. And so mm. it just, it really encapsulated exactly this idea. And I learned a lot from witnessing it and from watching it too, in a way that I'm glad I didn't write my book before that because writing that article completely changed the way that I've am writing the book. So yeah, it's not something that I learned in my first week and it's not something that I'm done learning. Is that, is that why that, uh, park, cause I was just there like a few months ago, um, three months ago or so. And I was there with a friend and we were doing the boats on the lake there. Mm -hmm. And there's like huge fencing, that's with like locks and chains like around the entire because we parked on the other side and I was like oh that's where we're going the boathouse and like my friend she was like oh no we have to walk all the way around because you can't get in here yep. and I was like what the fuck <laughs> park is this like I was so yeah. confused I was like why is there a 10 foot tall fence around this park mm -hmm. that's because of the situation you're talking about yeah that's when it happened and yeah that park you used to be able to walk into it from anywhere on the sidewalk <laughs> and what happened was there was a an encampment there that uh they wanted to get rid of and so they came in they actually put up the fence while everyone was in there um and it was it was really strategic in a horrible way that they basically they came in they said we're putting up this fence and it was you know armed police officers that put up the fence uh, and it's a big park. <laughs> so for yeah, those of you not familiar, it's a really big walk around it. It's a really big park because it's a, it's a man-made lake, but it's the size of a lake. <laughs> and there's a park and the playground next to it too. And they put the fence up around it and basically said, uh, when we're done putting this fence up, anyone still here after 24 hours is getting arrested. Um, wow. and they, and so they slowly people left and they, they made one entrance and exit and guarded it so that as, you know, people could only leave, they couldn't come in, which was also a way of preventing the local activist community who was really involved from being able to come in and communicate with people. Um, and then the fence has just stayed there. Um, there's been no talk of it coming down and it's, it's terrible. It's, it's ugly to look at. It means that you can't enter the park. Like you said, you have to walk all the way around if, yeah. if and there's so many so many people in the park like god forbid that there's you know an active shooter or something in the park like it's a real safety concern in a number of ways but it's literally there 
just to prevent another encampment from forming. And that's something I get into at the end of the article is that uh, something I've been learning from abolitionists is that when we give in to our carceral tendencies and choose security over safety, we actually all become less safe. Hmm. So by putting up that fence in the name of safety, because we want our kids to be able to play in the park without there being homeless people around like that, that very narrow view of (laughs) safety. That's not based in fact, we actually have made a park that's, you know, you have to walk really far around to get in. That would be unsafe if something violent was happening in the park. Uh, And there's cameras everywhere now in the park. So we've actually, in an attempt to sort of incarcerate unhoused people, we've incarcerated everybody. <laughs> like yeah. if you wa- if you go for a walk through that park, you are you're incarcerated. You are monitored closely, and your actions are under scrutiny, and you're less safe in many ways than you were before. Yeah, can I, and I know we're we're getting close to time, uh, but I I really am curious because you talked at the beginning of our interview about feeling drawn to these deconstruction spaces. And I know I'm on the kind of the far end of that being someone who is now rejected Christianity um, and don't consider myself Christian in any way, shape or form. And I, and I, and I want to just, I guess, speak for people in my situation um, coming out of Christianity, but still having a desire to participate in these things, how can people in my position, I guess, connect with these ideas you're talking about? I know that you're specifically talking to Christians in much of the work and the writing that you're doing. Um, Is there a place though, for those of us who are non-Christian and is there a conversation to be had between Christians and people uh, uh, not of faith, unbelievers, um, that could be a part of solving some of these problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you, <laughs> once you deconstruct the notion that not, uh, accepting faith has any bearing on afterlife, you're, you're really free to like associate with anyone <laughs> in the deconstruction community and have, like, I would say Cortland, I have a way more in common with you than I do with Mark Driscoll. Right. Mm, Um, and so, yeah. (laughs) And so, and so for me, like, yes, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, for, for me, like I'm much more drawn to deconstruction spaces, regardless of whether people are still in the faith or not, because I'm interested in having conversations with anyone who's interested in asking hard questions and is open to whatever the answer might be or the myriad answers (laughs) that might be, um, So I would say that, um, I mean, really, I don't use the progressive label that much anymore. Um, I think part of that is because I've sort of come to terms with over the last few years that this idea that like we're all, we're trying to progress toward making the world a better place. I don't really see that (laughs) with with climate change and (laughs) all these other things. Like, I think things are going to just get a lot worse, not to be too much of a downer. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so the idea that we're going to progress, it's also a very white thing. (laughs) Um, But I won't get into that too much. But 
yeah, I think that regardless of where you are in faith, the thing that we should all be doing right now is mutual aid. <laughs> I think mm. like re- with the people who are near you geographically. And if that includes some people of faith, if it includes some people of other faiths or people who have completely left faith or never were part of faith, uh, you know, it should include unhoused people in in your neighborhood. Like, I think the, the only way forward, the only future any of us have, and it's going to come faster than we're ready for it, is is kinship with the people near us uh, to provide, you know, community and, and mutual resource sharing. So um, I think that especially talking about homelessness, I I do think that we could end homelessness in my lifetime, but if we, if we don't, a thing that we can do is make people's lives better, even while they are experiencing homelessness, regardless of their housing situation, we can keep them alive, we can keep them fed, uh, we can keep them in community and solidarity. Um, so a lot of the way that that is happening is just through activist groups. There's several here in LA. I bet, I bet you could find one just by looking on Twitter, uh, for, or Instagram for, you know, local unhoused advocacy groups, people that are doing outreach, but they're not connected to a nonprofit. Uh, they're not, you know, part of, they're not all from the same church. They're people that, you know, are wanting to do something in their area. Um, that's where I would point you to. Um, my mm. wife is really involved with them here in LA. I am less so because I'm doing the, the nonprofit stuff and I can't do it for work and extracurricularly too, or I'd lose my mind. Um, yeah. 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 I hope I, that What makes I hear sense. you saying is that, yeah, it, it does. It's like, it's like what you're saying is that it's like, it's about the objective, right? And so there's mm-hmm. a way to connect with people around this objective, around this like mutual aid that to some extent what i'm hearing you say is it makes those other things somewhat of a non-issue like Mm -hmm. because it's like oh well we actually share so much mutual value here and that's how you begin to to change that division and that othering both between people unbelievers and people of faith and between people unhoused people and people with homes right like there's this like that that we're somehow not neighbors and yeah. that we're actually the same. We're actually sharing space together and have similar goals. Totally. Well, and I, I hate to sound so alarmist on your guys' podcast. I normally don't go this far down this rabbit hole, but I'm I'm happy to like the fact that we're all not feeling like we're in a total crisis all the time right now is crazy. Like yeah. <laughs> it's one of the most uh insidious things that like white privilege and capitalism has done is try to convince us that like normal life is like still happening and is okay while so many people are dying and so many people are on the streets. Um, and with the way the climate change is going in, in 30 years in many parts of America, like that illusion will be gone. Like, and I think Mm. the earlier that we, can sort of strip ourselves of that illusion, which happens by spending time with people who are extremely vulnerable and are experiencing the worst of it uh, and making their flourishing, our flourishing, making our mutual flourishing dependent on one another. Um, 
that's uh, that's that's how we do any of this and that's it's going to be the way of life later on and i think we can we can get good practice at it now yeah yeah well i always appreciate your perspective kevin and and i think our listeners are going to have a lot to take away from this conversation but i do want to give you a chance to plug your book that's coming out and also you mentioned the article that you wrote, like where can people find you, find your work and find what you've written already and um, how can they kind of keep updated on what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So my website is kevinmnye.com. Uh, you can sign up for my newsletter through there. Um, that's probably the best way to keep up uh, outside of Twitter, which is where I'm the most active on social media, where I'm at kevinmnye1. Uh, my book is coming out sometime in the fall of this year. I don't have a release date yet, but I should be getting one soon. And I think pre-orders are supposed to happen probably in the next month. We've already been looking at some cover designs. Um, so things are rolling there, but wow, there's not, yeah. Yeah, there's not, there's nowhere right now where you can click and go find it. Um, but pretty soon that should be the case. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that was, do you everything. think, are you slated to have an audio version of your book? Do you know? Um, I'm, I'm not currently not, not in the sense that it's not going to happen, but that's sort of a totally separate deal. Like your publisher, your publisher signs on for the book and, but then there's a different group of people that decide whether or not they want to do an audiobook. So okay. yeah, I don't cool. know how that side of it works, but you don't necessarily sign that at the same time that you sign a book deal. Start drinking a lot of water so that yeah. you can prepare to read your book. <laughs> I will, I will pre-order your physical copy of your book. And I just want to like overemphasize to anyone listening. If you care about the work that Kevin's doing, if you care about getting this message out to more people pre-ordering, I know that people are like, Oh, why would I pre-order a book in six months that's coming out? Because I can get, get it with one click and have it here in two days on Amazon prime. But like, for distribution and for advertising and for all of those reasons, pre-orders are huge and really, really important. Yeah. So like, please, whenever that link comes available, sign up for Kevin's newsletter and pre-order his book. It will be a fun surprise if you forget. And then it comes in the mail. It's really exactly important. that was, so. I, that's what I was going to say was that's the benefit to pre-ordering is all of a sudden you like you get a gift from yourself six months ago of a book that you wanted <laughs> and you forgot yeah. that it was coming. And also, yeah. you know, if you, good pre-order numbers might make the difference of whether or not I get an opportunity to record it as an audiobook. So there you go. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. We Absolutely. really appreciate it. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. Of course. So that was Kevin Nye future uh uh published author can i tell um, you a secret actually yeah he's about to he he's very soon to be able to take pre-orders and he's yes. going to announce the cover with the pre-orders and i've seen the cover of the book and it's Ooh. awesome inside information Megan on the inside scoop. I'm excited about the uh, the the release of his book, and I I think that I went on a little bit of a, a soapbox at the end of the interview, but I'll say again: pre-order Kevin's book. Pre-order any book that you care about the message, you care about the author, because it's 
like any of us, we know when the book comes out, it's going to be easy to get in 48 hours from when you click buy. And so it's easy to think like, I'm not going to pre-order because as soon as it comes out, I'm going to buy it and get it instantly on my Kindle or I'm going to get it within two days on Amazon Prime. But that's really not what the pre-order system is about. It's about giving as much data to these big distributors as possible to say, hey, this is a book that people are excited about. And that will help Kevin get more leverage with distribution, with platform, um, with his ability to spread his message. So if you care about the message and you're going to buy the book anyway, just pre-order it now. And that goes a really long way to helping authors. Yeah. And we just, I just started a Twitter thread, um, recently where a ton of people dropped the books they're pre-ordering and I bookmarked, bookmarked the thread so I could go back and I had, um, hadn't ordered everything yet. So if you want to take a look at that thread, send me a DM and I can, I can send you a link to it. We could put it in the show notes. We, we could, we could put it in the show notes. (laughs) Yes. Let's do that. We could put a link to that thread in the show notes if we remember. Um, the other thing I mentioned in our intro that I want to circle back to is Friday night. There is a post evangelical CCM karaoke night, nineties and two thousands music. And Kevin talked about it a little bit when he visited our show for Twitbits, but it's coming up this Friday and we have a couple, couple guests that are going to step in and join us Ooh, and surprise, surprise guests, guests that I think people will be excited to see. So um, if you haven't seen the information about that, we, you know, I'll put that in the show notes too. Awesome. Yeah. And, and that is going to benefit a, a good cause. I believe there's a way to do donations, donations through that. Um, which will help the uh, work of an organization that Kevin is connected to um, out in LA, working with um, folks that he was talking about on this interview. So if you are looking for an actionable way to put some resources that way, this is a great way to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's a fundraiser for um, an organization that puts on karaoke events on Skid Row. So Yeah, and yeah. Megan is co-hosting, which makes it, double worth it. And I also, uh, am going to try to attend. So, uh, it should be fun. You heard a little bit of Cortland singing in the intro. So, you know, I got, I mean, I bought this mic, you know, for podcasting, but it would, you know, really go to waste if it doesn't get used for some singing. (laughs) And just to be clear, I will not be singing. I will be (laughs) co-hosting, but I will not be singing. (laughs) Strictly Ryan Seacrest on this, uh, not a not a uh, contestant. Exactly. Uh, just just the host of the show. That's fine. That's uh, we will all look forward to that. Um, Megan, where can people connect with us? Get a hold of us. Uh, give us feedback on the show. I also was going to say um, before you do that, um, Ty. Um, I'm going to forget his last name, but Ty from Twitter uh, gave us a review. Did you see on Apple? I did not see. Is it Ty Grigg? Is that? Yes, it is Ty Grigg. Yep. I was going to get his last name wrong. So Ty Grigg, thank you for your wonderful review. Um, It makes our hearts warm and makes us very happy every time there is a review posted on Apple Podcasts. Um, You can go do that too and make us smile. Uh, Bring a smile to our faces. Also, other ways to connect with us, Megan? Yeah, you can check us out on Instagram at Thereafter Podcast and on Twitter at Thereafter Pod. If you're on Twitter, check out our pinned tweet because we're doing a giveaway right now and it's 
wrapping up soon. So check that out. There's a bingo card that you can follow along with the show as you listen. And um, you can find me, Megan, at The Pursuing Life on Twitter and Instagram. And Cortland, where can people find you? At Cortland Coffee. It's uh, the only one and only. Cortland Coffee on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Space Hay. Um, wherever you might want to Pinterest. Uh, I, I own Cortland coffee. Pretty much anytime I hear about a new platform, I go get Cortland coffee. Um, so yeah, slash Cortland coffee everywhere. You might be around the web. All right. I think that'll do it. We'll see you all next week for another episode.